a listener production. Hey, you're listening to Crappy to Happy. I'm your host, Cass Dunn. I'm a clinical and coaching psychologist, a mindfulness meditation teacher, and author of the Crappy to Happy books. In this show, we talk about all the things that might be making you feel crappy and give you the tools and tips to help you overcome them. And of course, in each episode, I bring you conversations with interesting, inspiring, intelligent people who are experts in their field. And my hope is that you take something from these conversations that helps you feel a little bit less crappy and more happy. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to my friend, colleague, one of my early mentors, Dr. Susie Green. Now, Susie, like me, is a clinical and coaching psychologist. She is the founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, which is an organization whose mission it is to help create flourishing lives and increase the well-being of the world. Now, many years ago, I first met Susie when I enrolled in the world's first Masters of Coaching Psychology at the University of Sydney. And at the time, as an aspiring life coach, I felt pretty out of place in a room full of managers and consultants and people in suits and ties learning how to be executive coaches. Then Susie Green walked in like a breath of fresh air. She was a PhD candidate at the time and she taught the positive psychology subject and she talked about the value of life coaching. She's an energizer bunny. Her enthusiasm for the topic was extremely contagious and she really reaffirmed for me the value of coaching for individual well-being. Susie is now, all these years later, a world leader in the complementary fields of coaching psychology and positive psychology. She helps organizations to create flourishing workplaces. She goes into schools to teach about positive education. And for individuals like you, she has recently written her book, The Positivity Prescription. And she's also created a six-week online course of the same name, which is kicking off really soon. So stay listening at the end of the episode for a special discount code if you're interested in Susie's positivity prescription. For now, here's my chat with Susie. Susie, uh, you are the CEO and founder of the Positivity Institute. Uh, Now, look, for the layperson who doesn't understand these terms, positive psychology, clinical psychology, counselling psychology, can you just explain to us what exactly is positive psychology? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess there are a few different definitions floating about, but the The most uh, simple and powerful one for me is it's the science, so it is a scientific study, a scientific field, of optimal human functioning. So even more simplistic, I would say just us at our best. So it's a study of us at our best as human beings here on the planet. And how does it fit then with other branches of psychology? So if we're talking about therapy and clinical psychology, can you just give us, for for people who aren't familiar, can you just give us a little uh, snapshot of how this new field of positive, newish field of positive psychology came to be, like where it fits? Absolutely. And I think, um, as you know, my background, I started off as a, a clinical psychologist, which I still am. Um, a clinical psychologist. And as a clinical psych, we're taught and trained to help uh, diagnose and treat clinical disorders such as depression and anxiety and other forms of psychological distress. And uh, I know in my training, um, it was very focused on symptom identification and symptom reduction. Um, And even, I guess, in the field of counselling psychology, which is closely related, generally people arrive uh, in your practice. and, And like you, I had a practice for many, many years working with individuals with problems. Um, Very rarely did I have someone come along saying things are fantastic, but I want them to be even better. (laughs) Whereas in, uh, I guess, coaching, which we're going to talk about today too, and positive psychology, it is often about people wanting, perhaps not, um, certainly not in in most cases being clinically depressed, although I did want to say that there is a role for positive psychology in clinical psych, and perhaps we can touch on that too. But generally positive psych is for people that just want to live better lives that might be languishing is the term that we use. So certainly not flourishing, but um, there's a recognition that they're not feeling their best self or they're not living their best lives. I love that you just mentioned the words languishing and flourishing. Can you explain that to us, to my listeners? Yeah. What is languishing? What is flourishing? Yeah. So I think um, if we think about, and most people these days, as you would know, and I think if anything, COVID has really highlighted the mental health issues we have in our community. Um, so it's we're not talking about a clinical diagnosis, particularly around a disorder like depression. So languishing 
could possibly be um, subclinical depression or on the way to developing a clinical depression, not feeling good and not functioning very well. Um, there are a lot of people that are languishing and a lot of people turn up to work every day. And uh, you've probably heard that term presenteeism rather than absenteeism. So they're there, but they're not really there. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly not uh, necessarily, as I said, uh, within the clinical realm. So that's languishing. Then um, in between, there's a large category called the moderately mentally healthy. <laughs> and uh, that's not a bad place to be, Cass, but I certainly don't want to spend the remainder of my life just being moderately mentally healthy. Um, <laughs> and so again, that's, you know, feeling okay, um, but again, not truly flourishing. And so the F word we call it in positive psychology, flourishing really is a combination of high levels of psychological well-being and low levels of mental illness, but also high levels of engagement or, you know, really playing to our strengths, having a, a purposeful life as well. So that's a real combination there of, uh, of experiencing a flourishing state. And I guess the question is, is it normal to flourish all of the time? Well, possibly not. And even with someone like myself or yourself that's highly skilled in psychology and psychological skills, when the curveballs come, um, do we use them? I can tell you, Cass, I don't know about you, but um, I know even through COVID, um, I really had to rely on my buddies and my learned friends that ha have those skills to help me because uh, it is very hard when you're in the eye of the storm to actually rely on the skills, which is why we need as many people as possible in our community to be skilled so we can help each other when the going gets tough. What you just described then is, I, I guess, to recap, so in my clinical practice, and I'm sure in yours, people would come in with depression, anxiety, with a problem, and we would work to get them back to functioning normally, you know, that probably in the normal range, absent of symptoms. That's it, on the depression, anxiety and stress scale. And then our job was over and we waved bye-bye. But we're going, let's not wave bye-bye. Let's job see done. where we can move to, what we can really right. do. Yeah. So, so therefore this positive psychologist for the people who might be functioning well, but they want something more. They know that there's, they want to fulfil their potential, live their best life, be more engaged. This is where, you know, I feel really passionately about this as well, obviously. Susie, you said there is, there, it's a real science now. For those who who might be listening, going, well, this is all well and good, uh, but you know, there are people who've got real problems in the world, or who dismiss it as you know, self help, happy, happyology, that kind of thing. What does the science say about positive psychology? Well, we do have over twenty years of research now since the field formally launched, um, but even pre existing the field, there were aspects that, that weren't identified as positive psychology, I guess, that we can still draw on. But the evidence is pretty compelling, particularly around the study of positive emotions. So uh, Cass, like me, I'm sure in your lectures, particularly as a clinical site, you never had a lecture on joy or love or, um, or kindness. Mm -hmm. I know all of my lectures were on fear, anger, shame, disgust and guilt, I usually <laughs> And on unhappy couples, I still remember having a lecture on unhappy couples. And I used to say, is that because there aren't any happy couples? And, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the research is pretty compelling um, around positive emotions. Uh, so we do now know that there are 10 different types of positive emotions, uh, whereas prior to this research, we used to clump them under happy, you know, and happiness. And most people understand what happiness is in a broad way, but we now, we're, we're a lot more nuanced around understanding emotions like joy, for example, like uh, elevation, which is the emotion you feel when you feel inspired, when you watch people engage in do good, doing good deeds, for example. So we know that when we are in, when we experience positive emotions, such as, as joy, as I mentioned, there's a whole range of physiological effects that happen. So our visual perception broadens. We actually look up and I've noticed all those look up signs on billboards lately. And uh, so we know that if you induce people into a positive mood state, and there's various ways you can do that, which we can talk about, 
you they've done try eye tracking experiments so our eyes actually scan the environment and so when we're scanning the environment we see more we see more options and solutions we're more attuned whereas as you know when you're in that fight flight or freeze stage stage or experience our thinking narrows down because we have to address right in this very moment what we need to do for our survival so there's a whole range of benefits besides seeing more, we make, the research says we make better decisions and they've done some great experiments with uh, surgeons that have been given very complex cases to solve and when you induce one group into a positive mood state and the other into a negative, they make much uh, more efficient and uh, correct diagnoses. Um, So there's, again, a whole range of these outcomes also around our immune functioning. Now, I would say now more than ever, particularly with COVID uh, and different strains that seem to be emerging, our immune system is really, really important. And on the flip side, as you, again, as you would be very familiar with, there's decades of research to show that when we're feeling, experiencing stress over the longer term, that it has a negative impact on our immune system, which makes us more um, liable to, you know, catch a, a virus, for example. So the research is showing when we're experiencing more positive emotions, it seems to buffer our immune system and we're less likely to uh, to catch the, the, the flu. And there's been a study to show that people that received the flu vaccine versus people that were engaging in a loving kindness, mindfulness meditation, the results were comparable. So, you know, when we're looking at whether to get the flu shot or mindfulness, and I'm not saying don't get the flu shot, but consider mindfulness as a means to boost your immune system, which also, particularly these loving kindness type meditations, gives us that positive emotional boost as well. That's the thing, isn't it? Like that's a real tangible benefit. I think so many people aren't necessarily aware. They know it makes them feel good and we'd all rather feel good than feel crappy, hence the Crappy to Happy podcast. But but I don't think people necessarily realise those physiological changes that happen. Like at a cellular level, we're actually changing. Absolutely. So it is, it's very, and we've known that, I guess intuitively for a long time, the connection, but the research particularly coming out of psychoneuroimmunology, again, is very compelling on that link between our emotional state and our physiological state. And of course, our behaviours, there's great research, which I'd just like to briefly touch, that shows yeah. that when you induce people into a positive mood state, they're more likely to make larger contributions to charities, to be more altruistic. Um, some wonderful research where they brought people together from very different diverse backgrounds and racially diverse backgrounds. And when you induce them into the positive mood state and they come together, they're more likely to see the similarities between us rather than the differences compared to when you do an induction into a negative mood state and bring these very different people together, they're more likely to see how we're different. And that has significant implications for our planet and our, our society. For sure, especially if you think about some of the politics of the last 12 months, those that divisiveness and those, you know, polarity and people's views. So if we just all felt a bit more positive, we could bridge some of those yeah, gaps. Yeah, we're more open to perhaps taking a different perspective, actually listening, yeah. being compassionate towards others. So you can see there's actually a whole ripple effect between, I guess, the emotions and then the behaviours that come out of those emotional states as well. Susie, there's a million books on happiness out there at the moment. I've contributed a little to that. (laughs) I've just got my third one coming out. Um, But, you know, I think we're all looking for for the solution, I guess. We're all looking for ways to feel better. Um, We've all heard of mindfulness, even if listeners don't really get it or they don't think they can get it. We all know by now that we should be writing down three things we're grateful for every day. These seem to be the kind of stock standard um, tips, you know, that you see on an Instagram quote. Um, What other kinds of tools or strategies or interventions could have uh, sort of fall underneath this banner of positive psychology? Can you just sort of give us an overview? Sure. And you're right, Cass, it is a banner or an umbrella we often refer to it as because often you hear people writing positive psychology off as fluff or non-scientific and it's very difficult to do that because, as you've said, there are many different areas of research or we call them constructs in psychology but topics basically that fall under that umbrella. The two that you've mentioned, and look, they're fantastic because 
I guess even less than 10 years ago when I went to, to, to organisations to talk about mindfulness, there were barely one or two people in a group of 30 that would say that they'd even heard of it. Now it's really taken the world by storm and there is compelling evidence to encourage us to think about regular mindfulness practice and regular gratitude practice. Although I do want to say the research suggests that if you're already a grateful person, you're not going to get an extra boost to your well-being by practicing gratitude. You've got to be ungrateful to get the benefit of that. <laughs> and I've seen it happen. I've seen people have major ahas that they've been taking people for for granted or taking their life situation for granted and by simply just acknowledging that through an appreciation or gratitude type exercise, they have a major aha and feel a lot better about that. But you're right, um, I've mentioned positive emotions, so that is a big area of research that's continuing. Strengths is a really large component of positive psychology. So a large part is around what we call character strengths. So they're the types of strengths that make us good human beings, if you like. So uh, strengths such as gratitude or kindness, there's leadership, um, love of learning, curiosity. And for those that are listening today, you can take a free assessment of your character strengths if you go to the VIA Institute, which is a great exercise to do. The area that I'm really interested in right now and um, is getting gaining a lot of research attention um, and really following on from the research on mindfulness is compassion and self, and mm. in particular self-compassion. I'm sure you've spoken a lot about that on the podcast, Cass. So, uh, and there's a wonderful book that's recently come out by some of my colleagues on the impact or, of awakening compassion in the workplace. There's a whole chapter on the impact on, on business wow. outcomes, which I'm sure we'll talk about today too. But I think at this point in time, um, you know, I know last year, and you were probably the same, I wasn't really being called on to do talks on well-being so much last year, but a lot on resilience and on mental toughness to get through the adversity. And um, so I just want to clarify that resilience, even though it did pre-exist positive psychology and in many ways fell under the realm of clinical psychology, it does fall under the umbrella of positive psychology. And uh, we know that positive emotions buffer us uh, from a resilience perspective. And mental toughness is another area that I've been really interested in that um, I would say would fall falls under that umbrella. And for those that are uh, on the on the uh, listening to the podcast today that uh, might appreciate some academic research, there's a fantastic paper that's only just come out in the last week in the Journal of Positive Psychology, looking at the benefits of taking a positive psychology approach in a in a pandemic. And um, oh, wow. very happy. It's an open access journal. Happy to send you the link, Cass, that um, perhaps you yeah. can make available to people as well. And it covers topics uh, that I've already mentioned. It also talks about meaning, which again is a really big area of research that's gained a lot of traction in the last 10 to 15 years. And we know that people that have a sense of meaning in their workplace report greater levels of work satisfaction. And those that have a sense of meaning in their life more generally report greater levels of well-being as well. And we know a lot about uh, now how we can go about developing greater meaning in our lives as well. So, yeah, and I, I think that's been a bit of a debate too. I mean, I use the word happiness in the work that I do because, like you said, like everybody resonates. We all know what that is. But it, it does boil down to meaning, doesn't it? It's that balance of positive emotions, feeling good, but also having that sense of purpose. Absolutely. And again, just looking at some uh, fairly recent research that looked at people that prioritise positivity, and I'm a big one for prioritising positivity, which basically is creating a life timetable, if you like, and putting in the activities, the people, the places that you know are going to give you a positive mood boost. And, and I've done that for a long time and it's made a big difference in my life. But there was a follow-up study that looked at prioritising meaning and, again, looking at people that really thought about um, their values and the things that really did give them a sense of meaning in their lives. And that seemed to give uh, benefits over and above prioritising positivity. So the meaning piece is really essential to a flourishing life. When you say um, strengths too, I just wanted to go back to that when you said people can go to the VIA Institute and take a strength survey. Now that strength survey, because there's a little bit of confusion about the definition of strengths, I think too, in positive psychology. I mean, because that is really like a values in action survey, right? As opposed to I'm really, my strengths are that I'm good at maths or I'm a good problem solver. 
Can you explain that a bit for people? Because that's always a bit of a confusing topic. Sure. And some of your listeners might be familiar with other strengths assessments like the Gallup Clifton Strengths Finder, which is used extensively in the workplace, or one out of the UK called Strengths Profile. Um, the VIA are character strengths, and that's really important because. Um, it was uh, developed by looking across cultures, across religion, philosophy through time, and they basically did a bit of a factor analysis and came up with six common virtues. So it, regardless of religion or culture, um, what were the common virtues and then what were the common character strengths? And so it's been a really powerful, uh, I guess, approach, and there's so much research um, on the character strengths that's been done in workplaces and in school settings. Um, but the other types of strengths are what we would call performance strengths. So uh, I mentioned the Gallup Strengths Finder. There's 34 themes uh, in that. There's 60 strengths in the other strengths profile. It may be that you don't necessarily want to develop all of those strength, those performance strengths, Cass, and you basically just play to your strengths. Once you get your reports and you know what your strengths are, the idea is that you play to your strengths. You, you watch that you don't overplay them because that's really important. But when it comes to the character strengths, it's not like we just play to our top five and we forget about the rest because the full 24 mm. are important. And in terms of being the best human beings that we can be, it really is a case of developing the full 24 over our lifetime. Now, I'm not there yet, Cass. I don't know about you. I'm still working on the development. No way to go there. <laughs> I've got a few more to go. So I think you can actually use them very complementary. And in some of the work we do, we'd start off as an entry into, into strengths because the VIA is very simple and it resonates with people. But then if you're in a workplace or an organisation, the performance strengths can be really powerful and they're fantastic if you're looking at career coaching or career changes as well. And speaking about um, strengths and values, I mean, I talk about values with people a lot and so many people, I think for you and I, who have, have been immersed in this sort of field for a long time, it's, it's just standard kind of stuff to talk about values and what are your values or what are your character strengths. But I've been really surprised at the number of people who never have thought about it, who have never really considered what their highest values are, like what is most important to them in life. So what's the point? You tell us, Susie, like what's the point of knowing what your values are and where do people start with identifying what they are? Exactly. Well, basically values are what matters most to you in your life. And uh, I mean, as you know, there's more and more research coming out of uh, acceptance and commitment therapy or training act, it's called, uh, that, sh that, that is sort of supporting what we already knew. I think from a coaching perspective, we've used values a lot to help people determine what matters most in their lives and then to design a life that reflects what matters most in their lives. But there is uh, more research coming out to show too that knowing what matters most allows us to actually sit with discomfort as we move towards living a more authentic life. Um, and I guess most of us ideally want to live an authentic life, um, but sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes it's, um, you know, not being the person that others want us to be, or it might mean sitting with some discomfort as we, you know, carve out or navigate a different life path for ourselves. So knowing why, for me, the values are the why of the goals or the why of our direction or our actions in life. And once you get really clear on what matters most, and we usually suggest trying to get down to, say, five, your top five core life values, they become, as one of my very early coaching clients said to me, the best decision-making tools he had ever had. Because when it came, and I was coaching him on work-life balance, I think, at the time, and uh, when it came down to whether I should stay at six o'clock for another hour, and, you know, and not get home till nine o'clock, not see my wife, you know, not have dinner with my wife, not have see my kids it was very easy to make a decision at six o'clock to go home. And we actually had his values up on the wall right in front of his face so that he could be reminded of what mattered most so he could make the decision to log off and go home. So they really do become great decision-making tools, particularly when you're conflicted. And although I have to say, Cass, sometimes we can have values conflict. 
So, for example, if we, yeah. we do want to achieve and we've got some career goals for ourselves, but we also value our family. And uh, so we're sort of balancing that time with family and, and achievement. But often we'll see too that the achievement often underpinning that is because I want to be successful for my family. So it's a really good discussion point. And like you said, I've had many clients that have said, a week, Susie, I can't do this in a week. I need a year. I need a whole year to really take some time out and reflect on what matters most. So I would suggest, and I do recommend that give it some time, give yourself a year, you know, to to really think about the things that matter most. There are lots of values uh, lists. You can just Google, they're available freely. Uh, We have a list, I'm sure you have a list, and you can just start off by asterisking. I know when I did it, I asterisked nearly everything, and then I just put it aside and came back to it, put it aside and came back to it until I had, and and I reiterate here the word felt, because when you actually get a physical feeling when you get down to the ones that feel authentic for you, you will feel them to be right. So for me, that's a great indicator of whether you've got the right values. Yeah, that's really good advice. And I concur. I think everybody should just be at least spending some time reflecting on, even if you don't know what they are, reflecting on what is most important in life as a starting point and as an ongoing work in progress really, right? To, to continue to reflect on that? Yeah. And look, I did my, when I was in my early thirties and, um, um, you know, I've had a bit of a birthday a few years ago and, uh, you know, 20 years on, I revisited those values. They haven't really changed, but the, the words have. So I think the words have become a little more sophisticated, I like to think, Cass, than what they were when I was 30, <laughs> but they're basically the same values, you know? So, and in fact, the research has that I've read seems to show that they don't change significantly over our over our lifetime once you get real clarity about what matters most. I hope that you're enjoying this conversation and realizing the benefits of positivity in your own life. If you are enjoying the show, please be sure to like and subscribe so that you get notified when new apps drop and head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a rating and review. Susie, I want to pick up on something you said too about the, I'm familiar with ACT as well, obviously, acceptance and commitment therapy or training and living a life that is authentic and in line with our values and tolerating discomfort. Now, I wanted to pick up on that because I think that a lot of people think that this positivity and this happiness stuff, and I've been accused of this, like that I've been told well, not told, somebody posted on my Facebook once, um, that it was irresponsible of me to be promoting this idea of happiness because it's completely unrealistic for people to be happy all the time and therefore it was irresponsible for somebody in mental health to be suggesting that that was a goal for people, which clearly anybody who knows my work knows that that's not my goal. Can you just counter that in terms of we're not about being happy all the time, are we? No, you and I as clean sites know they'll lock you up if you are, I usually say. <laughs> they will seriously lock you up. <laughs> It's not normal, <laughs> right? It's just not normal to walk around with that big yellow happy smiley face all day. Every Red day. flags. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I think, look, I'm not Dr. Happy, right? And in fact, some of my colleagues call me Dr. Cantankerous, Casper. <laughs> so, um, I, <laughs> um, yeah. That's hilarious. It, it, yeah. And look, as again, I think the benefit of coming from a clinical psych background is that we know that the full range of human emotions are absolutely important for us. They're normal and they're appropriate. Um, The only issue, as you and I know, becomes when they go to their clinical extreme. So, for example, when sadness becomes clinical depression, when anger becomes rage, when um, anxiety becomes, uh, well, you know, fear becomes an anxiety disorder. And even, as I mentioned before, when happiness becomes mania, you know, at, at that end. And, and I get a bit cranky, honestly, when I hear comments like that. And I'm actually writing a blog. On, I'm going to post tomorrow on LinkedIn about this, about this concept of toxic positivity. And I understand where it's coming from. And, and it's exact. we agree. We don't want people to be 
forcing, you know, positivity and absolutely repressing or suppressing difficult emotions because emotions are information. They're there for a reason and it's really important to pay attention to them. And if we just push them down, well, number one, we know they're going to find a way back up because the more you do that, they do tend to say, hey, Susie, and try and get your attention a little little bit more. But I hate to see that this dichotomous approach that, you know, if if you're talking to people about being happy or positive, that means that you're not saying it's okay to experience the so-called negative emotions. And I'm not saying that. You're not saying that at all. But what we are saying is, yes, it's really important to be able to sit with uncomfortable emotions because... You know, they are information, as we said, and sometimes we need to do that to move in a values congruent direction, as we were saying before. Um, and it's normal. Like when COVID first hit, I know myself, I'd sit down and turn that news on and I'd feel the, feel the fear response. And then I'm thinking about my business and uh, how are we going to survive? <laughs> you know, so all of that started to happen. But I guess I had the, the skills at the time to be able to be aware of that, to notice those emotions, to be curious about those emotions, but then to decide not that I'm going to push them aside or disregard them, that, but for the moment, right now, I had family coming over. I wanted to switch gears. I wanted to cook a beautiful meal for my family. I put on a piece of mood-boosting music, you know. I put a candle on and I started to bring my mindful attention to the activity at hand and I felt my mood started to lift. So I don't think it has to be an either-or situation. And um, But again, we certainly agree it's not about forcing, you know, positivity or happiness or just thinking positive because as one of my colleagues says, thinking, uh, positive thinking without positive action will give you positively nothing. You know, So we, we all know that. that you need the action. You know, it's not just the secret of thinking that you, you know, look, I usually say look like element persons and then tomorrow you wake up and you have. We, we need, there's nothing wrong with having visions and we know from coaching in particular that's really powerful to have an inspiring vision or a vision board but we need the accompanying action to be able to move towards the creation of that vision. And Susie you've mentioned coaching a few times and I know that you've done a lot of work not just individually but going into organizations and doing workplace coaching, executive coaching. I'm curious to know you know your work is in positivity what is the benefit to organisations of fostering more positive workplaces? And I guess also part B to that question is, are organisations on board with that? Do they actually realise now the, the bottom line benefit of cultivating a more positive environment at work? Um, I think we've we've got a bit of a way to go. Uh, I think, um, yeah, yeah. so I think definitely some are, um, particularly some of the innovative ones perhaps like Google and um, I'm aware that Xero have done some work with PosPsych as well. Uh, we've been fortunate to work with the global consultancy Accenture here in Australia and um, the leader at the time when we were brought in actually had or has a master's in positive psychology. So a bit of a dream wow. client for us to work with a senior leader that actually understands the science. So I didn't really have to go in and give the business case. He knew the business case. He'd studied that. Uh, hence why he brought us in to work with his leaders on both understanding the science of positive psychology, positive organisational scholarship, which is the study of post-psych in workplace settings, and also coaching as a means to really apply that science as well. So I think, yeah, I, my, part of my, I guess, mission is to educate um, workplaces around the real benefits of being proactive, teaching not just leaders but all people in, an, in a workplace Uh, the science of positive psychology. That's what I'd love to see happen as we go forward. And coaching really is is a means, as I said before, to apply the science because we see lots of organisations investing, you know, which is often not cheap, in training days. We know from multiple studies now the research varies, but, you know, around less than 10% um, people will retain from a training day. So unless we have some sort of mechanism to transfer that knowledge and put it into action, it's a complete waste of money and people's time. So we have been strong proponent of the use of coaching. Again, there's studies to show that coaching enhances transfer of training. 
Um, so, and that doesn't necessarily have to be professional coaching. I mean, we come in as professional coaches like yourself, hold masters in coaching psychology, um, but it could also be as part of the training day where you set up some peer coaching arrangements with people and teach them some basic coaching skills as well. And that's not too difficult to do really. And in fact, again, I, I mentioned there was a, a recent paper in the Journal of Positive Psych, another recent paper in the Journal of Positive Psych comparing a positive psych intervention which is basically learning all about these different topics versus a coaching psych intervention. And the, co- the positive psych did lead to increases in, in happiness and well-being, if you like, but the coaching led to a whole range of benefits beyond that. Uh, it looked at insight, uh, how much insight we, we learn about ourselves as, as human beings. It had an impact on resilience, for example, and it had an impact on a broader conception of well-being, psychological well-being. So things like meaning and purpose and positive relationships with others. So that's, a, for me, that paper is going to be a bit of a game changer because it's, I guess, finally yeah. showing that coaching is a really important, um, I guess, supplement to the science of positive psychology. Because that's where you started, right? You did the world first study on coaching as a positive psychology intervention. Have I got that correct? A long time ago. <laughs> yes, Back very... when you were lecturing me, <laughs> master's student. A very long Remember time that? ago. Yes, it was. And, and look, you and I, we're the converted and we know it works. But uh, unfortunately, coaching psychology, which started in Sydney, Australia, and it's something I'm very proud of. I know you are too, that it's a homegrown field. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's made some headway in the UK and Europe. It hasn't really made it into the US, which is where positive psychology really has a large foothold. And there are some really big names within positive psych. Um, but I really do believe that we're finally going to start to see greater acknowledgement of the role of coaching within positive psychology as we move forward. And Susie, just going back to that um, organisations, what are the bottom line benefits? What is the business case? So look, to be honest, we do need more research, Cass. There's um, one fairly powerful study that was done by Professor Kim Cameron uh, that showed uh, that there were objective measures of organisational effectiveness after they looked at what is referred to as positive workplace practices. So in organisations that had a significant amount of these PWPs, positive workplace practices. So they were things like expressions of gratitude and appreciation, regular expressions within team meetings and across the organisation, a forgiving culture. So rather than a blame and shame culture, people knew that they could be creative, that there was a level of psychological safety, which a lot of people are talking about now, and that people would be forgiven if they made mistakes. And the other big positive workplace practice was practices of compassion. So when people were going through hard times, not just the leaders, but the people around them really came around and supported people when they were going through tough times. And organisations that had a high degree of those practices had, um, they looked at uh, objective, not just subjective measures. So they looked at financial performance, they looked at 360 degree feedback, and they looked at customer satisfaction ratings. And um, again, these organisations had significantly higher levels, uh, the more of these positive workplace practices that were, were happening within there. Wow. I just wanted to touch on that because I know listeners of the podcast are all individuals and we're all thinking about how do I make these improvements in my own life? Like what's in this for me? But I think it's really, we all go to work and I think we need to get away from this idea that there's just me at home with my compassion and my gratitude. And then there's this different me who goes into this workplace and is just focused on outcomes. We really need to start blending those and seeing the value of those traits and characteristics and interventions and tools in that context, I think. Yeah, and look, I'm seeing a lot of grassroots. um, You know, I'm still surprised when I get phone calls and they perhaps want me or someone from the team to come in and 
give them, a, I guess, the scientific case for it. But they've already been bringing in some of the books that have made it out into the self-help. And again, from some of the top scientists in the field, like Sonia Lubomirsky or Professor mm-hmm. Barbara Fredrickson, but they've already started book clubs. You know, they've, they've left books in perhaps your book as well, Cass, in the staff room and people that they would never have expected to be interested have picked these books up and have started to come along to some of these positive psychology group meetings. So I'm, you know, it's inspiring to see that um, that there is interest that's growing in the workplace. And, uh, and again, it may not have to involve a large cost by bringing in a consultant. They might just use a consultant, um, you know, quite strategically, but they've got enough grassroots in, uh, interest and energy to, to keep it going and keep it fresh because it is something when and we have worked with a number of organisations, there's lots of initiatives that you can do and, you know, we can certainly advise on that, but you, you've got to keep it fresh all the time. So you want new people coming in if you've got a group of wellbeing champions, you want new ideas all the time, new little, you know, videos, mood-boosting videos, new research being brought in. It's not something, It's well, it's very similar to you don't just go to the gym once and think that you're going to be an elite yeah. athlete. You've got to keep it up, you know, and you've got to keep it fresh and doing new things all the time. There's a lot of talk at the moment about the mental health ramifications, you know, the and the ongoing potential mental health impact of what we've all been through with COVID. And there's real focus on there's going to be a great need for psychological services and support for people. What is the role, and you've probably summed this up already, but really what role does positive psychology have to play in this in terms of just that resilience boosting and helping people to cope with really challenging experiences in life? Yeah, absolutely. As I said before, resilience does, even though it was pre-existing, it does fall under the umbrella of positive psychology. And in fact, research looking at psychological well-being, um, I mean, there's still quite a bit of debate about what are the key or essential components for um, somebody that is experiencing high levels of psychological well-being. But most of the scholars agree that it's underpinned by resilience. So resilience, and most of us have a very you know, general understanding that it means our capacity to bounce back from, from adversity. And even building on that research, there's an area around uh, post-traumatic growth, um, which uh, again needs some more research, but it's a really interesting area looking at when people go through significant adversity and uh, rather than develop a mental illness, they actually grow stronger and uh, you know, and better, faster, stronger, better, if you like, through that experience. So that is ongoing research. Uh, the paper I mentioned about positive psych in a pandemic also talks about coping. And, and again, that's drawing on probably more broader psychological research as well. But there are lots of, uh, I guess, components of positive psych that can certainly help when things are uncertain. Mindfulness, again, even though it sits under its own scientific field, we have definitely brought it in under the umbrella of positive psychology. So right now, and I'm sure you, and I know you are a a big supporter of this too, for me it would be a non-negotiable having some form of mindfulness meditation and there are various forms as well. And, of course, I mentioned the loving-kindness type meditation um, and of course, yeah, a, a, it's a great one. It's a beautiful one, isn't Loving it? Loving kindness is, yes. Absolutely beautiful. So yes, um, I guess the simple answer is that there's a lot that we can draw on uh, that uh, in times when times are tough from a positive site perspective. Uh, just quickly, one study that showed that when we when uh, they did induce people into a stressful situation and uh, then they asked them, they had them, I think, in three or four groups, one group were put into this stressful situation and then they were asked to watch a funny video, perhaps a Seinfeld video or something. Another group were asked to watch a sad uh, movie and another group were asked to watch, I think, a neutral video. And then they looked at um, cardiovascular reactivity. So when you're stressed, your heart rate goes up and all the other physiological, physiological responses go up. The people that watched the Seinfeld video, their return to baseline was significantly faster um, than people that just watched it, that watched a sad movie or watched a, a neutral type movie. And I think as we intuitively know that when we're stressed, 
that we take ourselves off for a walk or we pick up the phone to a friend that we know is going to give us a boost or we do put on a Seinfeld episode. But, it yeah. is, I mean, again, a lot of this is intu- intuitive, but the research supports it now. It's nice to have that science to back it up. Absolutely. It's not yeah. just fluff anymore. <laughs> Yeah. And we're not just distracting ourselves. It's actually having a positive impact. It's actually really making a difference to our physiology. And it is being starting to be taught at school as well, which is my dream for the future that we all learn this at school. And mine as well. And I know that you have been a leader in that in that area as well. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, about how we can be incorporating this and get, teaching it to our kids in schools? Absolutely. It's a, it's my most meaningful work, even though the majority of our work is in the workplace and it's a, a much smaller component is the work that we do in schools, um, but it is the most meaningful work. So we've been involved in this field of positive education for over 10 years now. It did launch here in Australia, uh, originally at Geelong Grammar School, um, but now it is growing day by day and not just in Australia, but globally. Um, COVID has given it, you know, has slowed it down a little bit as as schools are really trying to come to terms with virtual teaching and homeschooling and and all of those challenges there. But I think there's no turning back now, Cass. I think the schools that have um, really been doing this a long time, like Geelong, like Perth College, who we've worked with for over five years, they will tell you, the teachers will actually have told me that if you have a, a, a child coming in, say, in year seven, and they've come from a school that hasn't done any form of not just positive side, but social and emotional learning, which again, for me, falls under the umbrella of positive side, but it does sit as its own separate field. If you have a child that has never had any of that, and they come into a school in year seven, compared to a child that has Uh, been at the school and has learned about positive psych and mindset skills and emotional skills, it is visibly obvious to the teachers. They say you can tell in terms of how the the student handles themselves, uh, their own emotions, and also how they manage their social interactions as, as well. It's really obvious. So it will be the future, cats. <laughs> it will be the future. Yeah, All schools will have this in the future. And thinking about the long-term effects of that as all of those children go on to become positive, emotionally healthy, well-adjusted, resilient adults out into the workforce, it's amazing. Susie, I've just got one last question and I want to I know I want to tell people how they can find out more about you your positive psych programs that you offer. But if somebody's listening and going, oh, okay, well, I've been feeling a bit crappy and I've been thinking that maybe I need to talk to somebody, but do I see, do I need to go and see a therapist or maybe do I need to see a coach and get some of this positive psych stuff going on? Like, is there a way for people to be able to readily tell uh, that they can screen? What should they do? Yeah, look, there's a lot I could say about that. But um, we have a flourishing scale yeah. which people can contact us about that will help determine whether you might be better off um, seeking some counselling or some clinical treatment. The Black Dog Institute also have some assessments on their website that you can go to. Um, But I know from my research that often people will seek out coaching um, because they don't necessarily want to see a therapist. Over the last 15 years, I've seen that change, thankfully, Cass. I've seen people be more open to talking about going to therapy. It's not like New York yet where people brag about their therapists. I really want to see it become like that in the future. Um, So part of my mission, besides encouraging people to perhaps have some coaching to determine what uh, their, you know, what matters most and how they want to live their their ideal lives, but simultaneously I would love to see people go and seek professional help for for counselling or for therapy. Um, And we also, we offer a very, uh, I guess, a a brief um, chat on the phone if you're also unsure about whether coaching or counselling. We don't offer counselling, but we can certainly refer. But you do offer coaching. We do offer coaching. And the Australian Psych Society, as you know, has have a finder psychologist service as well. But yeah, I would love to see people, more people go and have therapy as well as coaching to to determine where they want to go into the future. 
I'm really happy to hear you say that about less people now are showing up for coaching who probably really need to see a therapist because I know that when I was life coaching that I definitely had a bit of that and I hadn't done my clinical psych training then. I did coaching first and then went back to finish my clinical training. So I wasn't even necessarily, I didn't necessarily at the time even know how to differentiate or to tell myself if this person really needed to see a therapist. So I could find myself in a coaching relationship with somebody who probably really needed to see a therapist. And I didn't have the skills at the time to know that. So that's a really important point to make. And also um, good to know that now more people are more willing to actually go and see a therapist. True, but it's a good point too, because there are a lot of coaches out there, as you know, Cass, and um, it's an unregulated industry. So my advice would be to ask a lot of questions if you're engaging a coach about what their education is, what their background, have they had any mental health training? Um, Because a lot of coaches in the past, I do believe it is changing now, have never covered off on basic mental health um, training or first aid for coaches, assuming that they weren't seeing people that had mental health issues when in fact the statistics uh, will su- would suggest that, that a lot of people will uh, have mental health issues that are arriving for coaching. Yeah. Can you tell us also, I just know too, before you go, that you've got a program. Is it a online course that you're running? Yeah. So I run uh, the Positivity Prescription, which is also yes. the name of um, my book that I published last year. We run uh, once a year, the class of 2021 it is this year. It's my fourth year running it. It's um, standalone videos and then I come on for a live in, live in the lab call once a week where you can sort of ask me any questions that you like around the content and I usually bring the latest research hot off the press to those calls as well. And we also launched last year a program called Potential Plus, which is a workplace standalone program, which I'm also really excited for, but that's mainly for businesses to uh, to offer to their staff. But yeah, would love to see some uh, of the listeners uh, in the class yes. this year, Kaz. Jumping in, jumping in while they can. Susie, and, and I know that you've got offered a special discount for Crappy to Happy listeners, which I'll put in the show notes. Um, but this has been amazing, really insightful. Thank you so much for your time and lovely to catch up with you. No, thank you, Cass. The work that you do is really important. Um, historically, psychologists haven't really been out there talking much about the work that we do in, no. in the media or in the public. It's very brave of you to do so, but it's much needed. So good on you and keep up the fantastic work. Thank you, Susie. And you too. I know you've done your share of work out in the media as well. And I think hopefully more and more of us are getting out and spreading the word. So I appreciate it. If you would like to check out Susie's six-week course, The Positivity Prescription, and be part of her class of 2021, head to thepositivityinstitute.com.au forward slash shop and use the code crappy to happy 21 to take 10% off the course fee. That's crappy to happy 21 You'll find Susie on Instagram at Dr. Susie G, or as I said, her website is thepositivityinstitute.com.au. Of course, you can always connect with me on Instagram, castdun underscore XO, or castdun.com is my website. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I also love reading your messages, so shoot me a DM on Instagram or email hello at castdun.com. This wraps up our current season of Crappy to Happy. I'll be taking a very short break, just for a few weeks, and I'll be back with new episodes in a month or so. So now is your chance to go back through the back catalogue and catch up on any episodes that you might have missed or re-listen to some of your old favourites. Also, don't forget my third book, Crappy to Happy, Love Who You're With, is out in a matter of weeks, and the link to order that will be in the show notes. I will catch you very soon on the next season of Crappy to Happy. Listener.